Thank you for listening to the Northridge Church Podcast. For further information about Northridge Church, visit us online at northridgethompson.com. All right. On the hot seat. Thank you so much for coming tonight. I, uh, I'm excited about this second version of Real Talk. There's been a few questions that have been sent in that I had to do some research on. And uh, so I come to you tonight, uh, certainly with fear and trembling. I want to make sure that anything that I tell you, whether it be in this venue or whether it be from the pulpit just speaking or any time that we stand in front of, of God's people, there's certainly an urgency to know uh, from whence we come. Number one, we also need to know that we will be judged doubly by everything that comes out of our mouth. So I don't take this lightly. Y'all pray that this stool does not fall because it had a big yellow X on it when I retrieved it from the from the back. So that would be terrible with my rib. Thank y'all, by the way, for paying, praying for my ribs. I'm thankful to have my mother and father-in-law back with us after a long hiatus. They saw the world, Ricky and Linda, and we gave them a Another visitor's car. They have rejoined our church, so we've grown by two more just by them coming back. Good to have them back. So Miss Becca is our moderator again tonight. Uh, she is hidden behind the television. But uh, y'all, y'all say hi, Becca. All right, Becca, shoot. We ready. How do we know when the time is right and the place is right to lead someone to Christ? Great question. How do we know, and this is universal for every child of God, uh, that maybe has never led anyone to the Lord. Uh, in fact, statistics show that most Christians in church today, some 85% have never shared their faith and led someone else to the Lord. So how do we know? John chapter 6, and I believe it's verse 44, says this. No man can come to me, Jesus speaking, of course, except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up in the last day. The aspect of of knowing is twofold. Number one, you have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit as the person sharing your faith. You've got to realize that every single time that you encounter someone is not the right moment. It's just like asking uh, someone any other question. There's times where it's just out of character. It's not a good place. Maybe it's just putting them in a weird uh, uh, spot or something like that. But going beyond that, you have to understand that you have to take the, 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 the burden off of yourself to lead that person to the Lord. Let me say it this way. I think maybe if we share a faith, share a faith, and share a faith, and no one's responding and no one's coming to the Lord. I'll give you an example. It happens to me all the time. If I go and preach and I feel like God moved in a mighty way in spite of me, I give an invitation and no one responds. The instant we would think as pastors, you would think as a church, well, wow, no, nobody responded. What happened? What if nothing happened? What if it wasn't supposed to be that way? Because the Bible says in John's gospel that no one can be saved unless they're what? Drawn by the Spirit of God. Speaking, of course, of the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But I want to go one step further. Romans 10, verse 13. You hear me say this all the time. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Very simple verse. But let me read the next verses, and I want you to see the progression on something. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But verse 14 says, How then shall they call on whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they've not heard And how should they hear, listen to me, without a preacher? The word there is not a preacher like me. It literally means one who will proclaim the message of hope. That's you, that's me, that's all of us who would profess our faith in Christ Jesus and him alone, by faith alone and Christ alone. And then it goes on to say in verse 15, now listen to this. And how shall they preach unless they be sent? As it is written, and I love this verse, 
How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings and good things. I'm taking my shoes off. I got some pretty feet, y'all. I'm only kidding. Here, here's the point. If you look at that progression, just bear with me for one moment and watch this. Who, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How can they call in whom they've not believed? How can they believe in whom they've not heard? And how can they hear unless to be a preacher? And how can one preach unless he be sent? There is only one potential breakdown in that entire progression, and that is you and I, the ones who would proclaim the message of hope. Let me say it this way. He's still sending people. Let me say that loud and clear. The Great Commission is still the Great Commission. He's sending us out. And guess what? What I do know is when that message is given forth, there are people who are believing it. Aren't you glad of that? And then beyond that, there are those who believe that are calling. And everyone who calls on the name of Jesus is saved. So in the progression of that, there's only one potential breakdown, and that is you and I, the ones who are proclaiming the message of hope. So go back to the question, how can we know? Well, it's very simple. You have to be walking with Jesus yourself as a child of the Most High God. you got to be sensitive enough, Sean, to know that if you get into a situation that the Holy Spirit is prompting you at that moment. Why is that important? Let me answer it for you. It's because as he is nudging you to share your faith is the very millisecond that he is nudging them to receive the word. I've shared this many, many times. Several years ago in LaGrange, I I don't know about you, but just being real with you, I know there's other other pastors in the house. I just want to be very transparent with you. There has been times that I have been called to go and pray with someone. Over in LaGrange, I used to go as a youth pastor to the hospital almost every single day. We had a very, very large church that I served at. That was part of my duties. And I remember one day just having a bad day and, and getting into the hospital. I didn't want to go pray with this lady, but I was going to do the preacher thing and just go pray with her and just you know show up as a man of God and bless her in some miraculous way. And, and I walked in, and there was this girl standing in the elevator. And as I walked in, I got on, and she's standing there. The Holy Spirit spoke to my heart, and he says, share Jesus with her. I was like, I ain't going to do it. I didn't want to. I didn't feel like it. You ever been there? Just didn't feel like it? You ever felt like not going to church? You ever felt like not, not being a good husband or a good wife? Well, the same is true for pastors. Just being real with you. It happens. And, and I just didn't want to do it today. The Holy Spirit said, share Jesus with her. And I didn't. And so I was going up to the third floor to ICU. She got off at the second floor. So as she got off, as she got off, the conviction of, of the Spirit of God was so thick on me, I began to weep. And as I got out of the elevator on, on the third floor, before the doors could shut, man, God turned me around. I ran back into the elevator, and I'm hitting two, and I'm hitting two. It went up all the way to five. And I'm going, Lord, Lord God, please let me find her. Please let me find her. Finally, I hit down. I went down to two. I got off, and I'm looking for her. I know they thought I was showing sure enough crazy, and I was running around looking for that girl. I couldn't find her anywhere. And, man, I just felt like the biggest failure if any pastor had ever failed. I said, now I sure ain't going to to the third floor and pray with somebody. I'm not worthy. So I hit floor lobby button and I went down. And as I got off, that girl was sitting on the benches right in front of me. And as I walked out, she said, I knew you would come back. And man, I just collapsed and I said, please forgive me for not sharing you. I want to tell you about Jesus. And I sat right there on that stool. I shared Jesus with her. She accepted Jesus as her Lord and Savior. Went upstairs. She led her mother to the Lord and her mother died that night. How do you know when it's time? The Holy Spirit will tell you the end. Okay, next question. Do our pets or animals go to heaven? Wow. 
This comes from a little girl, young lady that's here tonight somewhere. I'm not going to call her out. I don't want to embarrass her. But I want to I give you a couple of uh, breakdowns of this, of course. First, I think we should agree, and I think we can agree, that mankind and the animal kingdom are significantly different in the creative state when we look at that. My, my answer for years and years and years is no, they don't. I've read the books that, you know, animals go to heaven. I've looked at all the theological blogs. I've looked at uh, all the different websites, apologetics website. But I started looking at a couple of things, and I just want to give you this. I, I want to break this down for you the way that I, that I looked at it. On day five, God created every living creature of the seas and every winged bird, the fowls of the air, blessing them to multiply and fill the waters and the skies with life. Day six, God creates all the creatures that live on dry land. Also, six, always, 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 and the word of God stands for what? Man. It's one short of perfection, always. So he created man that day, and he declared everything a good work. But I want you to take note to a couple of things. This is what we have to realize, that God took counsel with himself in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Listen to what he said. God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Who was God talking to? He was speaking to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. It's speaking of Elohim, the plurality of God, God the Creator, speaking to Himself. Have you ever talked to yourself? Come on, all you crazies, get your hand up. You know you talk to yourself. I watch y'all. Y'all are, yeah, that wasn't a really good song. I could sing that, you know, yeah, well, anyway. I'm just kidding, Jonathan. Nobody said that. No. Do you break a string every time you play? You need to quit sharpening those picks. Yeah. God makes man in the image of God, and he said that he made him himself, and he said, let us make man in our image. That's, that's notable because he only said that about man. So that's the first point of reckoning. To emphasize this fact that man was separate, God places man, and I love this. How many deer hunters in the house? You know it. He placed us in authority, Jason, over all the animal kingdom and told us to subdue it. I looked that word up. That means go hunting. Okay, that's what that means. Kill Bambi and her mama. That's what that means. No, I'm kidding. Well, no, I'm not. But anyway, hunting is okay. We can subdue it. We can eat it. It's all good. God blesses the man and commands him to reproduce, to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, bring it under its rightful stewardship as man, as the authorized head, not only of the animal kingdom of the world, but also the home. Ephesians 5 and 22 says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband. The husband is the head of the home, even as Christ the head of the church. Very, very important for us to understand that. Second, the issue of soul and lack thereof. It's very important to understand. Psalm 139 says that you and I, we are fearfully and we're wonderfully made. It's very important also to note that every single thing, Ronnie, that God created aside from man, he did what? He spoke it into existence. The Bible says that he created out of nothing. The word there is ex nihilo, and he spoke it, and out of nothing it became a man. Now, however, I mean, became a living being, but however, out of, aside from that, he actually, if you want to personify this, he gets on his knees and he takes the dust of the earth, he brings it together, he fearfully and wonderfully makes man intimately in his own image, puts his mouth to his nostrils, breathes in his nostrils, and he becomes what? A living soul. He is the only one that became a living soul. So that also is something that we need to note. However, comma, it's very important to understand. C.S. Lewis, I love C.S. Lewis, wrote this. He speculated on the eternal fate of animals in his writing, The Problem of Pain, suggesting that at least tame animals 
might enter heaven through the relationship with humans in the same way that humans do with the relationship with Christ. And if you know who C.S. Lewis is, you want to take note of that. He's an incredible theologian, writer of our time. Animals have their lives in God. Psalm 104, if you're taking notes, we read that animals look to God for their food and that when he withdraws his spirit from them or hand from them, they return to the dust. We also know, as he told us, he said, I know if a sparrow falls to the ground. Nothing happens that God doesn't know about it. But probably more notable than any of that is the fact that the Bible teaches that God does save the animals. How about that? Are you surprised? How many pet owners in here? How many pet lovers? All right, got some good news for you. There's a term in theological circles called the law of first mention. And it simply says this, when God being a God who is changeless, the same yesterday, today, and forever, he cannot do something over here that he will not do in the future. That's incredibly important for you and I to note. I'm going to show you that in just a moment. But when the first time that we see God's wrath poured out upon this earth was, of course, the act of the flood, Noah's ark, you know the story. But in that, I want you to know that when he did so, he didn't just put Noah and his three sons and their wives and his wife in there. He put, he said, go and grab two of every kind, seven of some. And he said, put them in there too that they may live. It's very, very important that you understand that. But then it goes on to see that God not only saves animals, but watch this. He also includes them in his covenants. If you look at it, he says... Uh, in Genesis 6, 18 and 19, God set a covenant with Noah, the rainbow, and he said that every living thing and of all flesh shall be applied to that covenant. Also in Hosea, God proclaimed a covenant with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, the creatures that move along the ground, all creeping things. When God made a covenant with one of his chosen people, remember, he also assigned them a name. Remember, Abram was father. He gave him a name, Abraham. He said, you're going to be the father of many nations. Sarah meant mother, and she would go on to be mother of many nations. Isaac, of course, was the name that he gave uh, the promised son of Abraham, who means God laughs. He changed Paul's name from Saul to Paul, indicating that he was no longer a man above all men, that he was a man of humility, and on and on and on. And guess what you do when you get a pet? You name them. C.S. Lewis also said in The Great Divorce, Perhaps when we name animals, they become themselves and of our salvation at that point could possibly flow into them. And one final note here. Check this out. This is pretty cool. In Isaiah, animals will be in the New Jerusalem. The Bible says that the wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard with the goat, and a child would lead them by the hand. Perhaps God will honor the many acts of us naming our animals even bringing my big great Dane Harley into heaven. However, because the Bible doesn't irrefutably say, let me give you this little disclaimer. I wrote this down and I really had me a little fit. Ultimately, everything that you love about your pet, everything that you love about your spouse, your children, your, your kinfolks, everything you love about every person that will die and go to heaven, hear me and hear me good. You will not have that same relationship that you had with them here on earth. I, I will not love my father more than I love Kyle. And that blows my mind because I love my dad a lot more than I love Kyle. You know what I'm saying, Kyle? You get that? Amen, brother. You get that? Peace out. But watch. But because when I get in heaven, the Bible says we don't know what we'll be, but we know that when we see him, we will be what? Like him. 
So when I get to heaven, hear me, I'm not going to long for that relationship with my father. I'm not going to long for that relationship with my pet. Everything that I want, desire, and ever hope to have, I will find sufficiently in Jesus and Jesus alone. Let me say it this way. If the only thing in heaven were Jesus, it would be enough. There is nothing that can be added to Jesus in heaven that will make it more heaven. Does that make sense? Can I get a witness? Because here's the thing. I think we have a skewed look at end times and life after death. And here's the reality. That guess what, guys? It, it ain't about going hunting in heaven. It ain't about walking by the crystal sea. And it ain't about eating fruit. And it ain't about running up the Apostle Paul and say, Hey, tell me how you did it. How did you write all those books? Hey, Jeremiah, why were you crying over the people of Judah? Hey, Isaiah, how, what were you thinking when you saw uh, in Isaiah 6? And on and on and on. Let me tell you something. I hear people say this all the time. Wait, I get to heaven when I can ask Jesus, let me tell you something. When you get to heaven, you're going to fall flat on your face and worship him for all eternity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. You're just going to join the anthem of the great singers in heaven. How many of y'all cannot sing here on earth? Me either. That's okay. We're going to be able to let it rip in heaven. Next question. This one is in several parts, so we'll have to pay very close attention. It right. says, read John 16, 7, where Jesus is saying that he must go for the comforter, the Holy Spirit, to come. Please explain the Spirit of God, Spirit of the Lord, His Spirit, Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit was already with us, and what is the difference in the Holy Spirit before and after Jesus? Did y'all get all that? Y'all taking notes? Let me read John 16, 7, and maybe you'll, you'll understand where this person's coming from because this is a very profound question. Jesus in John 16, 7, I don't even have, I, I quote this all the time, but let me read it word for word. Jesus speaking. He says, nevertheless, I tell you a truth. It is expedient. It is essential. It is necessary for you that I go away. For if I go not away... The capital C, if you're reading in a King James, comforter, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. I think it's important, first of all, to understand the trendy before we can understand this question and the nature of it. There has always been God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Always, always, always. They're in three parts. They're all in one person. You say, Mark, that cannot be. Well, actually, it, it can. I am the husband of Stephanie Barnum Pritchett. I am the father of Ashley and Tyler. And I am the son of Jennifer and Bill. Co-equal in one person, yet acting in different respects. The father acted on the creative standpoint. Elohim. He was God the Father. And in that attribute, he was the creator of the universe. Amen. You with me so far? Say amen. Y'all do it like this. The Holy Spirit were all of those things that that person had asked about. It was the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of comfort. It was all of the spirits that you see in Scripture was personified in that one spirit that we see here in John 16 called the Comforter, capital C. And then you see that third person, Jesus, who his attribute was in the redemptive purpose. So we see the creative, the Comforter, and then we see the redemptive purpose. Now, has Jesus, I want you to, this is class participation. Was Jesus created 2,000 years ago for a time such as this on the cross, or was he forever in the beginning God? How many of you believe he was created 2,000 years ago, came to this earth, lived a perfect sinless life? Or do you, how many of you believe that? 
All right, how many believe he was in the beginning God? All the way in the beginning. John 1, 1 settles that once and for all. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14 of John chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. When you look into the Word of God, you see the face of Jesus. You see the face of the Father, and you see the guiding force of the Comforter. Now, here's where it gets a little sticky. When God created man in the garden account, he put all the man over our dominion of everything in the Garden of Eden. And there was a tree of life where he could partake of that, and he would live in that eternal state, sinless, forever and forever. When man sinned, watch this, there's three parts of man. There's a trichotomy. There's a body, there's a soul, and there's a spirit. The soul is what's going to go to heaven. The spirit is that which was connected to God. Why? Because we have to worship God in spirit and in truth. You cannot connect with something that is spiritual without being in the spirit. Would you agree to that? So when man sinned and man failed, he was ostracized not only from the garden, but he was disenfranchised. He was put aside from full fellowship with God from being able to walk in the cool of the day, if you will, with God. Unadulterated, if you will, fellowship with God. He was put out from that. Why? Because he lost the essence of the spirit of man that was connected to the spirit of God. But watch what happened. From that point on, Chad, there was an inflow and an outflow of the Spirit. But notice the Bible says that the Spirit of God in the Old Testament, the dispensation of the law, and the law reminds us all, all the time, every day we see the law, reminded us of what He created in the beginning and our need to get back to that through a Savior. Amen? So watch what happened. The Bible says a word. Write this down and look it up in the Old Testament. The Bible says this word in the Old Testament, that the Spirit of God came upon man. Now, if I put something upon this stool, it's not in it, is it? But watch what happens. On the day at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Bible says that the Spirit came into man and dwelled man, and that's the person of the Holy Spirit that will never leave you nor forsake you, the friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Now the Word is abiding. Remember John said, talking about the spirit of the vine, he says, if I abide in him and him in me, without him I can do nothing, but in him what? I can bring forth much fruit. See, it's the spirit of God, Chad, that rests in us now, that abides in us, same word for tabernacle, so that we're able to go freely in and out of full fellowship with God. In fact, the Bible says it this way in Hebrews, we can go now, how? Boldly before the throne of grace. Why? Because of the Spirit of God. Can I say this to you? You don't go boldly before the throne of God because you're a pretty good old gal or a pretty good old girl. Guy, you go boldly because of the Spirit of God that rests in you. So when God looks down from heaven, he doesn't see Stephen uh, Green. He sees the Spirit of God resting in his life and through his life. Does that make sense? So you just got to see the different dispensations prior to the cross, after the cross, and so forth. I think I got one verse. I love this verse. If you want to write this down. 1 Corinthians six nineteen says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Watch this. I love this word. Which is in you and which you have from God. So it's different than being upon you, isn't it? Than just moving over you, than being in you. Great question. Great question. Oh, by the way, a little side note to that. Write this down. 1 Peter 1, 23. You can't lose the Spirit of God. Did you know that? Once you have him, once you have him and he has you, watch this. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, that's of the flesh, but of incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides, and everybody say this with me, forever. Say that with me, 
forever. No, try it one more time, everybody. Forever. How long is forever? It's a long time. Awesome. Good question. What is typology, theophany, Christophany, and are all angelic appearances Jesus incarnate? Great question. First of all, what's typology? Typology is a word, another word for type, type of Christ. Uh, it foreshadows the person of Jesus. A good way to understand it is, is I look into the Old Testament, every single act, every single thing, even pieces of land like Zion or Jerusalem are types of Christ. The ark is a type of Christ. The tabernacle is a type of Christ. The furnishings in the tabernacle, all the way from the altar, the laver, the lampstand, the show, table of showbread, the ark of the covenant, every single piece of every furnishing of every part of the tabernacle is a type of Christ. And uh, people can be exodus. The exodus out of Egypt was a type of Christ, the redemptive aspect, the manna that fell from heaven was the bread of life. That was a type of Christ. Moses was a type of Christ. Joshua, or in the New Testament, Yoshua, the Lord is salvation, is a type of Christ. The priest Melchizedek is a type of Christ. But when we get to the part of Christophany and the Theophany, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 8, I love this verse. When the three men called the Lord, all caps, appeared to Abram, he bowed down, and listen to this, underscore this in your study, and he was not rebuked. Why? Because it was a theophany. It was a theophany. Three men, three is always indicative of the resurrection, of course, the divine resurrection. The three men that, per, per, that made themselves apparent in the form of angelic beings, if you will, in front of Abraham, when he told Sarah and Abraham, he said, no, you're going to have a child, and it's going to come from your own loins. And remember, Sarah laughed in the tent, and he, he called her out. He said, why are you laughing? Because you're going to have a child. And his name, in fact, would be God is laughing. His name would be Isaac. So that is a theophany. Joshua 5 and 13 is a Christophany. In verse 13 of Joshua 5, I love this. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho and he lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and said, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, neither. I love, I love that. He said, I ain't for you or against you. You don't realize who I am. And he goes on to say, I am the captain of the host of the Lord. And now I come, listen to this, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and he did worship. And he said to him, What saith my Lord? He knew then who he was, to my servant. And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Listen to this. Loose thy shoes from off thy foot, from the place wherein you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Before I give you this final answer to this, this question, you see two instances of, of Christ coming to earth prior to the cross and presenting himself. And there's many, many, many accounts. It's all debatable. It's really neither here nor there. But we do know that Jesus presented himself in several places. I do submit to you, however, that I do not believe he was the fourth man in the fire in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because if you look at the actual translation, Nebuchadnezzar, who was a pagan man who would not have known what God looked like, he said, I see four men, and the fourth man is likened unto a little G God, if you look in that real language, which means this. He just saw it as a God man. He figured it could have been some angel. These, however, Mark, how do you know when this is a Christophany or a Theophany? I had you underscored. Anybody want to take a stab at that? How do you know? 
How do you know when an angel of the Lord presents themselves, how do you know that it was really God or Jesus incarnate in the flesh? In one way. Because every occurrence that you see them fall down and bow down to worship him and he, they're not rebuked, it is God in the flesh. Because if you look into Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10, John was told not to, not to bow down and worship the angel. He was in the third heaven. And it says, Then I fell down to the feet and worshiped him and said, Do not worship me. I am a servant of God just like you and your brothers and sisters who testify about their faith in Jesus. Worship only God for the essence of prophecy is to give clear witness to Jesus. The angels would not allow man to bow down and worship. Jonathan, while you come back up, if you want to come back up and make a song ready, I think we've got time to close out this last uh, question. That's your cue back I was processing. I'm sorry. <laughs> Explain pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, and post-tribulation rapture, and which of these apply to us at Northridge? All right. At Northridge Church, we are a pre-tribulation rapture position as a church. Okay? There are three. Now, there are a lot of diversities of these three. There's even something called amillennialism, which I think is crazy. Because that suggests we are living in the millennial kingdom now. And if you think that's fine, then take your little child and let them go lead the wolf and the leopard by the hand. And we'll just settle it right there. Pre-tribulation rapture. Now keep in mind the tribulation period. The word rapture is not found anywhere in the entire word of God. We get that from the Latin word rapture, which comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and following, where the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with the shout and the trump of God, the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ shall be raised first, and that we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. That phrase, caught up, is where we get the word rapture. The word trinity is not in the Bible either as a side note, but we do know there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, a triune God, which we transliterate the word to mean trinity. So anybody that says rapture is not in the Bible, tell them to get over it and show them that the Latin word for caught up is rapture, and we'll move on. Here's what's going to happen, guys, and I submit to you that we live in the final days of which nothing else in apocalyptic literature, Daniel, Revelation, is, has to happen before Jesus comes back, aside from your preacher getting shot on the stage during real talk number two. Three forms of, of rapture. Here's what's going to happen. Jesus is going to, I mean, God is going to say, go get them. He's not coming to the earth. He's going to stand in the clouds, and he's going to call us home, and it's in the split second of a millisecond in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. Mark, how do you know that it's got to happen before the seven years of tribulation? There's, there's hundreds of reasons, hundreds. One is that the time is called a time of Jacob's trouble. We know that it's the wrath of God poured out upon this earth, a seven-year time of hell on earth like never before and never again. Jacob, though, is indicative of a man named Israel. He had 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. They were God's people. And there's two reasons for the tribulation period. One is judgment of the nations, and the second one is to reconcile Israel back to himself. That's why it's called a time of Jacob's trouble. Secondly, Go back to that term I told you earlier. The law of first mention suggests that anytime God does something in Scripture, at any moment in time, He has to follow that same protocol, if you will, that same pattern all throughout history. Mark, what does that mean? 
when he poured his wrath entirely upon this world in Genesis by way of a flood, he made a way out. And that was the ark. And remember, I told you that that was a type of Christ. He told them, build an ark and get in the ark. They didn't get on it. They got in it. If any man would be in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, all things become new. When they got in the ark, anyone who wanted to get on, Noah said, got in it. And then God shut the door. Read it. God shut it. Man didn't shut it. Jesus said, I am the door. And if it got in him, then the very thing that came upon this earth to destroy the earth lifted up. Watch this. Lifted the ark up above the very thing that caused the people beneath to perish. Indicative also of the rapture of the church. Secondly, he did it in Sodom and Gomorrah. He followed that same pattern, didn't he? The sins of those in Sodom cried out. And God had to respond because he's a holy God, much like he will today. Man will only go so far. God will have to continue to do what he's done. And he will pour out wrath upon this earth. He will. You can count on it. But he made a way out. He told Lot, and Lot had a little deal with him. Hey, can I find 50? Can I find 40? Hey, let me just find my own family. Let me get the fiancés of my two daughters and my wife. And the two guys, her fian- the fiancés of his daughters didn't even, they thought he was a lunatic. But he got his daughters and his wife. And they left. But of course, as well as you know, the wife looked back and longing for a life that she once had, she turned to a pillar of salt. But the ones who left were redeemed exchanged for the wrath of God because of the person of Lot who found favor with God. And on and on and on, guys. The midpoint of tribulation just doesn't make any sense. People read that from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9, where it talks about the midpoint of the tribulation period of three and a half years where the Antichrist will enter into the temple of God on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. He would declare himself to be the Messiah. However, it says that day shall not there be a falling away first, but understand something. That's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians is speaking of the rapture. Second Thessalonians is speaking of the second coming of Christ. Just when you go read that. And finally, it's important to note that we cannot, cannot, cannot go through a period of God's wrath. Do you know why? Because the Bible says we are not appointed unto wrath, but unto salvation. But I want to give you, in closing tonight, a real simple, profound gesture. The Bible goes on to say in 2 Thessalonians, and hear me, that if you have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, have crucified, redeeming your life, and you reject that love of the truth, you say, no, not now. And the rapture of the church should happen. The Bible says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and following, that you have no hope because God will send you strong delusion that you will believe a lie. Here's what I'm saying. If you say no right now, the Holy Spirit is nudging you to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. And you say no, not now. I'll do it next week. And you walk out those doors and something, you know, God forbid, should happen to you where Jesus Christ comes in the moment of a twinkling of an eye. You can't say, God, save me fast enough. Because you've heard the gospel, you have no hope. Hear me. Go read it in the Word of God. I'll be glad to hang around afterwards and show you. So what are you going to do? Heads bowed and your eyes closed tonight. Do you know that you know that you know that if you died right now, you have heaven for a home. Jesus is your Lord and the Savior of your life. If you're not sure tonight, 
tonight is your night. If you're 100% sure that if you died tonight, you'd go to heaven, I want you to lift your hand. Nobody looking. Lift it up high. Say, I'm 100% sure. Some hands have not gone up. You can put your hands down. Right here, right now, would you call upon the name of the Lord? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Pray this with me from your heart to God. Say, God in heaven, I'm a sinner. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that he died on a cross for me. And on the third day, he rose again, setting me free from the bondage of sin. Dear Jesus, I ask you tonight to forgive me of all my sin. Save me. I make you the Lord of my life. Help me now to live for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Every head bowed and every eye closed. If you pray that tonight, the Bible says you've been born again. Not because you're good, but because he's good. Thank you for listening to the Northridge Church Podcast. For further information about Northridge Church, visit us online at northridgethompson.com.